gentlemen, and welcome to a very special episode of the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My hope for our listeners is that you can take away a special nugget of information from each of these interviews, something that will serve you and the people most important to you in pursuing a life built on purpose. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Wise Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Kathy Sachs. In this episode, Kathy covers a variety of topics, including the power of unlocking human potential, how playing it safe on the inside is a recipe for mediocrity, and why you should embrace the things you fear the most. Kathy was one of the earliest employees and an investor at Infusionsoft which is widely considered one of the darling technology companies in the Phoenix area. After a very successful tenure, helping grow the company from a few million to more than 60 million, she decided to leave. We'll explore her journey and how she's used the power of intention to guide her through uncharted territory. Kathy is the real deal, raw, full of passion, emotion, and on a path to create a wave of positive change in this world. Whether or not you know Kathy personally, by the end of this episode, you're going to walk away with a clear understanding of what makes her tick and a blast of inspiration to live the life you've always wanted. Listen up, people. Get ready for a big dose of Kathy Sachs. Well, good afternoon, Kathy. It is just absolutely awesome to be with you today. Thank you so much for carving out some of your time and spending it with me and our audience. I am so excited to be here with you, Brian. So I want to start this podcast, and there's going to be a few people out there, I know, surprised to many, that don't know who you are. So I'd love to start things off, and maybe you can just share with us, who is Kathy Sachs? It's a big question. I'm wondering where to start. You know where I'm going to start? I'm going to start with the fact that I am an entrepreneur. I'm someone who loves to grow businesses, start businesses, help others to grow businesses. Um, so that's, that's one dimension of me. I come from a background of um, immigrants. My dad was an entrepreneur, eighth grade education. And so watching him build his business, he was a mason contractor and watching him do that and the sort of feast and famine, cyclical sort of seasonal approach in our family really inspired me. And I don't know I don't know why I thought that was the right way to go because he was actually not really good at handling the stress of it. But for me, I love the idea of being in control of my destiny. And so that's really been, I think, the theme um, in my career. I'm also a mother and I'm a wife, and I take those two roles very seriously. In fact, they are the priority, right? Um, I say that, and it's also really hard to manage that when you've got ambitions to um, build things, but I find a way, and I feel like my life is—I um, feel pretty blessed. So um, one of the th- one of yeah. the things that 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 I know is really central to how you live your life is this concept of unlocking potential in yourself, in the people that you care about, in the people that you see who are working incredibly hard to make a difference in the lives of others. Did this concept of unlocking potential was it? Just is it your DNA or is this something that has emerged over time? Because your career, the reason I ask is your career, uh, like most of ours, has had some interesting twists and turns. And and I'd love for you to share if this unlocking potential theme has been with you the whole time or if it's something that has emerged uh, in more recent past. 
That's a great question. Uh, I would, I think it's kind of, um, I think it starts with the DNA. You know, it's interesting, Brian, because I've, I've always been, uh, I've been on the side of thought where you can change anything about yourself, right? If you put your mind to it, if you work really hard, you can make anything happen. You can be anything you want to be, and you can develop the talents with practice and hard work, right? That's what I learned growing up, and it's and it's carried with me throughout my life. And yet, it's interesting because I spend I've spent the last couple of years digging into um, digging into just genetics and understand it's, it's a world that I was never even involved in. Right? I, I grew up in um, learning marketing, right? Learning marketing and, and the business side, but never got into you know, neuro neuropsychology. And and so the reason I say that is because I actually think that there's way more DNA here than I've ever realized. And and when I've made that shift, it's allowed me to then take what I think is DNA and know the things that aren't a part of me and stop worrying about the things that I'm not good at and focus on the things that I'm really good at. What what and, led, I want to talk about the shift though, if I can for yeah. a minute. What led to the shift? Because you speak of it, uh, you said it so casually, but. I don't think for most of us that it happens casually. There's there's something that sort of shocks you and, and it's like, oh, wow, I need to shift. What, was that what happened for you or was it truly just a casual shift? Yeah, I, I can't say it was like this one day, this, this epiphany hit me and I think it's been more of a gradual, but the work, um, so, so I look at it this way, right? So I'm a female. I'm an only child. Um, my parents were, you know, first, I'm first generation, so my parents were not educated. We did not grow up wealthy. We we're middle class. Um, compared to other Hungarians in New Jersey, we were actually doing really well because my dad, like I said, was an entrepreneur. He didn't work in the factory like a lot of our, a lot of my friends' parents did where there was like this steady salary. So my dad was this risk taker. And my mom was a seamstress. She worked in a factory, though she was much more safe um, than my dad was. And so, you know, um, I was a perfectionist and because I was the only kid, because I had something to prove, because I was the first person to go to college, I had this huge chip on my shoulder. And it's, I mean, it's, it's common, right? I mean, you, you run into people that are, that are this way. And as a result, as a result, I look back and I realize I have played it safe for most of my life. And to the outside, it looks like I was really, you know, on, on the outside, I had a magazine, I co-founded with my husband. We we built it. We were able to sell it to a publicly traded company. Um, then we started another magazine. I had a successful um, in San Diego, and and that that did that did well. And then the timing in the market didn't work out so well. Um, we were able to to move from that successfully. And then I had a I started a, a tech PR firm, one of the first tech PR firms. I did really well with that. And then I took on heads of marketing roles with uh, with fast growth tech companies. To most recently, I was with a company called Infusionsoft. It's a category leader. Um, I was an early investor, early consultant, and then joined the the management team when we were doing about 10 million. And then we took the company to a little over 60 million when I left. And we had two acquisitions and took in I think like 70, almost 70 million in in, um, in venture capital by the time I had left. And yet, when I look back. I realized that I was playing it safe. And the reason is because I never wanted to look bad. And so I tried to be good at everything. And when you do that, you're not spending the time focusing and doubling down on your strengths. You're just sort of like hedging. You know, you're just trying to manage it all rather than really focusing on where you're really just very sharp. And it's your superpowers. I call them your superpowers. 
And so for me, you know, um, it really came with when I when I when I stepped out of the roller coaster, you know, being in, in this venture backed fast growth factory of sorts, right? It wasn't a factory, it was an early stage startup. At that point we were we were past startup and we were we were still early stage. But um, you know, part of it becomes a grind and you don't spend a lot of time in introspection. You're just doing it, doing it, doing it every day. And I realized looking back, I was just up to proving something and looking good every single day of my career. And do you, do you think me, do you think you always knew what your superpower was? Yeah, I don't I don't know the answer to that. Um, I can say that. So when I look at it, one of my superpowers is I've got I've got um, I've got high EQ. I have street smarts. I have an ability and just this tenacity to hustle and figure things out. And and through that, um, when I'm working with people or brands, right, there is this sense of my energy. It's almost like I let you borrow my energy and I give it to you so that you can see and feel your awesomeness. And if you don't know it, I'm going to let you believe. Take mine for a minute. And, and I'm going to believe in you so deeply that you're going to just get over the fact that you don't think you can do this and you're going to do it, right? I don't know if that comes off clearly, but it's like this sort of borrowing my energy and belief in you. I'm going to let you borrow it so you can go and do cool shit and get over your obstacles of like, I'm afraid, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I don't know enough, whatever it is your challenges are, you just get over it. And then the person experiences having having accomplished the thing that they were most afraid of, and you just sort of do that incrementally. And next thing you know, that person is, is doing things they never thought that they could. Um, so, so it sounds like from, from, from that explanation that you really live your life according to the notion that the thing that scares you most is likely the thing you should be throwing yourself into the most. Is that fair? Mm, that's really accurate yeah yeah that's it that's so, it and so you wrote a manifesto and i want to go through it cuz i think it's really really cool there's 10 uh 10 points to the manifesto and these are your beliefs this is Kathy's manifesto and if you don't mind i'd like to read this off and and these are the things that you believe in you believe that people are braver than they think they are you believe that making money and delivering positive impact are not mutually exclusive. You believe that fear exists to remind us that we're alive, so embrace it. You believe that when you break out of the past, you can write a new story for yourself. You believe that getting distracted by surface level wants is the quickest path to a life unfulfilled. You believe that honesty takes courage. Truth is the answer every time, that you believe in curiosity and asking better questions, you believe you were given a voice for a reason, use it, you believe that every day should be lived with courage and care as though it were your last, and finally, when in doubt, you believe that gratitude is always the right answer. Where did this manifesto come from? Why are these the 10 points that make up your, your manifesto, the Kathy Sachs manifesto? Well, my, my context is me, right? So someone else is going to have a different manifesto 
and it's based on my own set of experiences. It's interesting, actually, I haven't, I don't know when I wrote that post, but I haven't actually revisited that in, I don't know, maybe almost a year. It's pretty powerful. Yeah. How does it, I'm, I'm curious, how does it feel hearing it? <laughs> yeah. That's actually the experience I'm having right now. I'm actually sitting here, I'm sitting with it saying, wow, I, do I still believe those things? And hell yeah, hell yeah, I do. And I am, it didn't happen overnight, right? Um, the, the Kathy that I was, I mean, this isn't to say I don't like to win. I like to win. I think oftentimes when you begin to go down a road of, you know, dreaming and, and setting an intention and being a better person and this introspection and this sort of heightened self-awareness, I, I find you can almost go into like woo-woo land and all of a sudden it's like, rah, 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 this person isn't really a hard-charging entrepreneur. And I don't think everyone thinks that, right? But 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 I say this to listeners where it's like um, what that manifesto to me embodies is that you can carry both of those things. You can care about heightening your self-awareness, betterment of others, you know, following the path that is more fear-ridden and requires more bravery because it's the better path for you and probably the better path for the world. Um, all those all those pieces like. I care, oh, I care so much about that. And at the same time, I'm not going off and writing self-help books and making that my business. Like I realize that there is commerce and capitalism and that it serves a purpose. And so I know that you care super, very deeply about this idea of conscious capitalism, right? There's a name for it. There's a group. Um, I know you and Y Scouts are so deeply embedded in this idea. And so when I hear you describe the manifesto, it's like, yeah, that's totally it. And What's interesting to me when I step back is I realize is I don't think I always believe that it was okay to think that. What I mean by that is it's like work has to be hard and it has to be painful. That's what I was taught. And you that's think, kind yeah, of the way I, I operate. Say, you think that comes from watching both what your mom and dad did? Oh, yeah, 100%. My parents didn't like what they did. My father, he, there was adrenaline when he'd go out, you know, to, to, He'd go out and do an estimate, right, for some wealthy developer, um, and he'd come back and, you know, funny story, my job, this was, I'm kind of dating myself, but this is before, you know, computers, right? This is like, I'm, I'm a product of the 80s. Right. And so we had our Smith Corona typewriter, <laughs> and he had a three, I'll never forget, it was a three-piece estimate, you know, white sheet, pink sheet, yellow sheet. Yeah. And my job, okay, my job was to capture his notes and he would dictate to me. I didn't get paid for this. I didn't have a choice. Basically I'd get my ass kicked if I didn't do it, right? So right, right. so I did it. And I realized this whole idea of like the perfectionism that I referenced earlier, right? If I like with the Smith Corona, you can't white out. Like you type it and then it's there. And you gotta start with a new sheet of paper because you've got a typo, right? And he would get so pissed at me if I made a mistake. I would literally be quaking in my boots telling myself, okay, don't make a mistake, don't make a mistake. And you know this as being a parent, and I know this being a parent just as humans, right? Tell yourself what you want to happen, and that will happen, versus right. telling yourself the negative, right? Yep. So I'm sitting there terrified. I'm like, you know, I'm 10, I'm probably 10, 11 years old, right? I mean, I'm in grade school. And I don't say this story to feel sorry for me. I just look back, and I'm like, of course, of course I wanted to do things that were safe. Right, maybe not safe for everybody else, but for me and my risk taking, my propensity for risk taking and wanting to build a legacy, like 
Oh my God. I mean, well, it's interesting though. I could have lived so much bigger. Yeah. It's interesting though. Cause you know, and I want to go back to the comment you made about from the outside, it may have looked uh, one thing, but on the inside, you know, you, you say you were playing it a bit safe, certainly safer on the inside than it appeared on the outside, you know, yeah. partnering with your husband and co-founding magazines and starting uh, print publications in a couple of different cities. That doesn't sound so safe. No, it really wasn't. Well, I mean, that's... Like you saw how, how we paid for, you know, how we even got mortgage payments and, <laughs> and did anything, right? We literally, we mortgaged our house for that, which is insane in the membrane. I would never do, I'd never recommend to an entrepreneur to do that today. Well, yeah. you, you know, if they're that passionate about it uh, in pursuing, I, I, something tells me you would encourage them to go by whatever means necessary, as long as it's ethical, moral, and legal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, there's certainly kind of reckless nature. Look, you know, if you if you can do anything, use other people's money. That's what you do. <laughs> and, and don't and don't put a personal guarantee on it. Yeah, you know, it is it is worth taking. I guess you know what I mean by that, Brian. And, and I, we can go there because I know you're 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 like this too. What I've figured out, and this is through having had, um, you know, different, having gone through being in media and co-founding this magazine to building a team and having no idea what the hell we were doing. We were in our 20s and we were just going for it. And there were other publications in town. There was the Business Journal. There was a publication called Arizona Business Magazine, which was like the old white dude magazine. And we wanted to be the new breed magazine, right? And so... You know, we learned a lot in doing that. We made a ton of mistakes, and we really did a lot of things that we were very proud of. And still today, I have people in Phoenix ask me, like, you know, we really miss BizAZ. Like, that was a really great magazine. And those are the best, the highest compliment you can pay to me because we put our blood, sweat, and tears into that. You know, I got photographers to, to work for me for pennies, and I couldn't afford the best photographers, the best writers. But, you know, we found a way, and they wanted to work on this project. And so... Um, I mean, I guess when you're in it, it didn't feel like a risk. Um, but you know, when I when I look back at, at when I look at back at that, and then and then taking you know growing up and maturing right in my 30s and now now my early 40s, just turned 42. You know, a mom um, and we have a seven-year-old daughter and my mother passed away a few years ago um, and I left a big job, so I turned 40. My mother died. Um, she got sick with leukemia. A five-month battle, and then we went from trying to save her life to taking her home and doing hospice for two days, and she passed. Um, and then, so I just left Infusionsoft um, the, day that, the day that I got the call from her that she was diagnosed with this crazy, ugly, um, I didn't even know the leukemia was cancer, I'll be honest with you, <laughs> I had no idea. And so that happened, then I turned 40 about maybe four months after she passed. So for me, that was like the, that was the moment, or that was the series of events that made it very clear. And you hear this from people, right? You have these like moments of, of tragic events that happen yep. and out of it come wisdom. And I've, I've been able to come to the other side and realize, be very grateful for all the bad things that have happened. That, well, the things that you'd stick in a bad bucket, they've actually been some of the greatest things that have ever happened to me, right? You think um, that's just a matter of you choosing perspective on it? Yeah, and I don't think, and I think that it's 100% it's a choice. You can choose. You know those people that you meet who, whatever happens to them, and it's just a shitty day. It's going to be a shitty day the rest of the day. 
my business is not doing well or you know i'm not getting the promotion or you know whatever it is right, right. and they be and it's like it's the victim mentality right. and i'd have to say i had that you know I've, I've had that in my life and i think it requires real choice it's making the choice being aware that that, that that's not serving you and wanting um, being in enough pain to want it to be different and then taking the steps to get access to people and information that are going to then educate you in why it makes sense to make the shift and see things through a different lens. Um, so, yeah. so you've had experiences as an entrepreneur, uh, and even when you were a senior level leader of organizations where it wasn't solely your organization, uh, you still led in an entrepreneurial way. So for the majority, if not all of your career, you've been in a leadership capacity in some way, shape, or form. Could you define what, what what's Kathy's leadership philosophy? What is leadership to you? Leadership could be it's a, it's it's a list, right? But I think it all starts with I think it starts and ends with self-awareness. And if you asked me this question a few years ago, back when I was a VP at the software company and, and had a team, I don't think I would have used that. I, would, I wouldn't have referenced to it. Um, I wouldn't reference that answer with one word. Um, and it's because of, yeah, it's, it's self-awareness. Why? Why? Because if you don't know who, if you're not interested in knowing more of who you're being, then how can you learn to be better? How can you learn to serve? Leadership is service. Leadership is not about me being the boss. Leadership is about me enabling the people that I'm leading to be their very best selves. So obviously a huge component of that, you mentioned the word learn. And whether it's learning about oneself, learning about the particular craft, learning about a particular industry or trade, at the core of all that is, is learning. And I know for a fact how much you lean into reading. You, you consume book, books like uh, Chocoholic Consumes Tootsie Rolls. And I, what I want to know, given how much intake you, you, that, that happens for you, how do you make sense of it all? Because it's all, you, you can't use all of it. How do you make sense of everything you consume? Well, it's a work in progress, right? So I take, you got to take the stuff that you think that makes sense with the context of your life or what you're up to learning, either for that period of time or for, you know, the longer term and you accept some of it and then you reject others. Like, like I'll give you an example. This is a book. I think I share this with you. I'm a huge fan of a book called Multipliers, right? Right, right. Liz Weissman and her co-author, who's now gone on to have a big book himself, Greg McEwen, he wrote a book called Essentialism, which is also another really great book around focus, um, The Multipliers. And I'll tell you a story. I first came across Multipliers working under a CEO who um, really just, he's, I still consider him a friend, right? He's just a really good person, loyal, um, sometimes almost loyal to a fault, right? Um, but just a smart self-aware, interested, high-learning kind of CEO. In fact, he's the one who, from a reading perspective, really, I think, inspired the rest of the team to read. Although, you know, when you're in the, when you're in, in the, 
when you're in the middle of the climb, it's really hard to yep. find the time to read, right? Sure. So now sure. that's it. I don't, I'm not running a team, so it's a lot easier to find the, uh, find the time to, to read. But so he had us read this book called Multipliers. And the, the core thesis of Multipliers is this. It's the idea of surface as a leader. And uh, everyone has a leadership style. And your leadership style is comprised of ways that you multiply people meaning you take someone and you make them 150% of themselves, or you diminish them. Diminish meaning I'm only going to get about 20% of Brian when I really could be getting 100% or multiplying you at 150%. I'm getting you at 20%. Why? Because of the way that I'm managing you, because the way that I'm leading you. And this book goes into all the different ways that we diminish and the ways we multiply. So this CEO that I worked with, just brave, high self-awareness, interested in knowing, interested in knowing how to be a better leader, had each of us execs at the time, I think there were about eight or nine of us, we would do offsites every quarter, two, sometimes three-day offsites. And one of the offsites, a portion of the day was dedicated to us having read multipliers in advance and then coming to the table as a group and all of us having a list and telling him, these are the ways that you multiply me and these are the ways that you diminish me, right? So if we just kind of tease that apart for a second, Brian. Yeah, I mean, the we fact didn't do that, this. Yeah, for me, that the immediate gut reaction is, wow, there's a CEO walking the planet who is actually inviting that type of feedback from his or her team is special in and of itself. Right, exactly. So then you take that another level and you do it in this group environment. You talk about the best leaders and, and the best leaders that I've worked with and, and the groups that I've been leading, where you have high trust, you have high performance, right? And so as a leader, building that trust within your team is, is, is one of your number one jobs. And so this exercise was, I mean, it did like three or four things all at the same time. It built trust, high trust as a group, trust in the CEO. And it was very, um, it, it, it was, we didn't hold back because we're a high performing team and we wanted to make sure like how do we break through and how do we up-level our performance? And the only way to do that is to deepen the trust, take away the safety, so you can so you can invite debate, more rigor when it comes to how to make decisions and and strategic conversations. And you, it's not a it's not a place for the for the bullshit zone. It's not a place for people only saying what they think others are going to want to hear. It's not a place for groupthink, right? I mean, but groupthink is just like the deadliest of the deadly when it comes to trying to build a high-performing organization that's out to conquer the world, right? In, in really beautiful, meaningful ways. Um, so I share that example because I came away from that, like, wow, that's, I wanna be more of that. And so then I took that, that same exercise and I had my team do the same, do the same thing. And you come out of it with heightened self-awareness. You ask the questions, you're going to get answers you may not want to hear. In fact, you better get answers that you're not going to want to hear. Um, and you might, you know, you might have your flank exposed in ways that feels uh, not satisfying, maybe a little shameful. But the minute you kind of pick it up, you know, and just move on, that's the mark of a really incredible leader. Someone who doesn't get into the emotions of it, doesn't take it personally, and realizes that it's not about me. It's about the organization. It's about the people. And so whatever they need me to be, I'm going to be more of that. Can you, uh, I'm curious, do you remember any of the feedback that you had received and some of the ways 
or a particular one where you were unknowingly diminishing someone? Yeah, actually. Um, so one that I was notorious for was, it looked like micromanaging and I could explain away, you know, why I was doing it. But at the end of the day, I wanted people to, I expected a high bar of excellence and that's great. You want leaders to, to, um, to demand that, to expect that. But at the same time, I also didn't want to see my people fail. And so I would get more involved as they developed strategies, as they developed, you know, projects. And I would give them input, which would, I was not asking enough questions. I was giving answers. Right? Yeah. And so, and there's a huge difference. And frankly, I see this now even in parenting. Like, I got to get better at asking my daughter questions rather than giving her the answers because I just get to see how smarter I am, right? But I don't get to help that person be better and smarter themselves. So how is that leading? How is that guiding and teaching? So that was one of the thing, one of the themes that came out, which was I kind of needed to get out of people's spaces and trust. And I took that, I'll be honest, I took it personally. I'm like, what do you mean? I totally trust you. Like, of course I do. I hired you and I trust you and I believe in you. But the message I was giving them was, mm, I don't think you do. Otherwise, you'd back off. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, th thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that very much. So it, it's obviously having known you for a while, uh, it's beyond clear that you rev at a really high RPM. And you've shared with me that slowing down and meditating has been a really big, it's just created massive impact in your life. What, what's it done for you? Depending upon who in your listenership, like what they pay attention to, um, you could argue that mindfulness, meditation, um, more, you know, being more into your spirit and your soul, like that's sort of, it's, it's become this trend. And I, I'm going to echo that that's something that more people should be doing. Um, but I don't want people to, to, to dismiss meditation like, oh, I've tried, it doesn't work. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Um, the meditation that I do is TM, Transcendental Meditation. I've been, you know, I've been trying to get you to do it too because I think you rev at a high <laughs> RPM also. I think that your potential and you know, just the things that you're up to would be even more profound, right? Because um, I guess, what, 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 is, what is meditation? So I tried, I tried a bunch of different meditations, Brian. I tried like the Oprah, the Oprah ones with Deepak where you download it and I still listen to those because what, what, what her and uh, Deepak Chopra have to say is, can be really meaningful. Yeah. Um, I tried that. I think I've tried, I don't even know, other ones, just sitting in silence. And I just hated it. I mean, the time couldn't go by any slower. I felt like, am I doing it right? Am I not doing right? You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a type A. I'm a high achiever. So I want to know, am I, am I winning, right? Um, where's my, never where's my where's my meditation report card? Right. Damn it! Totally, totally. Like, where's my script? Like, <laughs> Give me a dashboard. <laughs> and so, um, and it wasn't until uh, one of my one of my best friends, she was doing it, and she was doing it. It's interesting. We came into it with totally opposite reasons. I was all about upping my performance, you know, getting more out of the brain that I have and the DNA that I have, right? And and also extending. Um, extending the power of my brain so that it you know works really well 
longer than it's you know, supposed to. Um, and she was going into it for reduction of anxiety. And to say that we both got benefits, it's, it's incredible. And so here's what TM is. You go, and it's, it could be expensive too. I think it's like maybe almost $1,000. And you get training, and you get someone who is your coach. And it's a small group. Um, and I did it for, well, I don't know how many days. It was like three or four days. You can go and get checked. And you're basically given a chance that you say over and over again in your mind. And there's something to be said about, first of all, having that much skin in the game, having a coach. I'm a huge, big believer in, in hiring coaches to help you um, get better at certain things that you want to get better at. And I had just read, I don't know if you know anything about TM, but you've got all these celebrities, all these business people. Um, I think for me, the kicker was, uh, the Tim Ferriss podcast I've been a listener to, a uh, listener of since the beginning. And he had a data point. He's also a TMer. He had a data point, Brian, that said 80, 85% of the guests that he had had on the show to that point meditate daily. And that to me was pretty compelling. It's like, okay, if these people like, you know, Ray Dalio, you know, the um, major hedge fund um, guy, and I'm trying to think about the other people aren't coming to my mind. But you know, people that I that I admired or respected are all meditating. There's got to be something to this. Sure. So I did it. I did it. And ever since then, it's the first technique that I find myself. If I miss a couple days, I'm reaching for it. Now, the way it works is you're supposed to do it in the morning for 20 minutes when you first get up, and then 20 minutes in the afternoon, like between two and four o'clock. I feel like I'm a confession, but I don't really do the <laughs> afternoon one. <laughs> and I know for optimal benefit, one should do the afternoon one and et cetera, et cetera, right? But I, and when I do that one, I'm like, oh, shit, this feels great. Why am I not doing the afternoon one? And it's like, well, you know, real life gets in the way. But to bottom line it for you, the benefits is it helps me be way more calm. And it helps me um, just not, like, when things, when things don't work out, I don't get my panties in a twist anymore. Like, I'm like, okay, got it. So there's, there's a reason for it. I'm just calm, cool as a cucumber, and I don't, I don't have such, um, it hasn't made me a robot. I still have a personality. I still, you know, have great days and bad days, but it's made me feel like my center of gravity is rooted in something so much more stable and powerful. It's like the center of energy that can be used in whatever direction I point it in a much more um methodical higher return way does that make sense it makes tremendous sense absolutely absolutely so i believe it's been close to if not maybe you know to the day three years since uh you parted ways with infusionsoft since you left infusionsoft and in a blog post that i read on your site that you talked about forging a new path it was one that doesn't have this nice neat bow on it I'm curious, since your departure and this new story that you are writing, what's been happening over the last three years? Well, so there's, there's this Buddha quote, and I'm pretty much an atheist. I'm raised a Catholic, um, but not practicing. My husband's Jewish. He's not really practicing. And, uh, and I like to go to Buddhist meditation sometimes, and I'm not someone who really believes in the story of religion, but there's, but there's, um, but there's an ideology that I that I can subscribe to depending upon the religion. And so, 
there's this Buddha quote, and I'll share it with you. And I think it kind of frames what the next chapter is looking like and will continue to. There are only two mistakes one can make along the road to truth, not going all the way and not starting. And I love how that captured it. It, it, it captures for me what, it really frames what my life in however many more chapters it will unfold in. Um, it's about doing the things, trying reinvention, trying new ways of, you know, being sounds a little like unclear, but, but new ways of being, I guess, where you double down, um, you go all the way, and the things that you want to do, but you don't because you're afraid of starting, like to just start and try those. So I'd say you know, the first year after I, after I got off, um, left my big job, and I'd gone through those life events that I described, like it was a year of grieving. And luckily I had, you know, left at a time where I'd saved money and I didn't anticipate, I didn't want to moonlight. So I really didn't know what I was going to be moving into. I just knew I wanted to go back into working for myself um, and not playing it safe, I guess. And so, so I'd say the last two years, what I've been up to is trying new things, right? So I was doing, I've been consulting with companies uh, helping them to drive more, you know, drive drive better, more powerful brand strategies um, to and how to grow, how to acquire more customers. And I'd done some of that with Infusionsoft after I'd left. Um, but I'd say in this last year, what I've focused on is what are the things that I haven't done that I want to try? So one of the things that I set out to do was to um, help companies in a more formal manner. And so I began to take board seats. And that's been really interesting and, and a great learning experience. Um, another area was I had been angel investing before I even really called it angel investing. I was an early investor, shareholder in Fusionsoft from, this would have been in 2000, like 10 years, almost 10 years ago, right? And, um, and it was a really smart investment. It's multiplied really well. And, um, and so I began to look at that and saying, okay, how can I take some of that and put it back into the uh, back into the community? So I've gotten involved in uh, more angel investing here locally in the Arizona startup community, which is actually, you know, if you don't know, um, for those of you that are outside Phoenix listening to this, we have a really incredible, exciting, um, very promising community, the ecosystem here of ideas, um, funding opportunities, and the community of people that want to see these companies do well is really just it's the most generous place. It's just the most generous community. And so I've gotten more involved and played a role there, um, investing in some companies. And that's been fun. Um, doing more, you know, advising and kind of getting out of the, the marketing sphere and kind of coaching, advising founders and CEOs in the stuff that doesn't really fall into the groups, um, doesn't fall into the typical. And what I mean by that, it's like mindset stuff. You know, it's like we are our worst enemies and are also our greatest champions. Um, more often than not, we're the, we're, the, we're the former and not the latter. So I find that can be really helpful, going back to the superpowers I was talking about earlier, it's like what does the CEO need to believe about themselves so that they can be a better leader? And are you and using that? Are you using that lens as a very important one as you're choosing where to invest? Are you, obviously it needs to be a great business. At least I, I, yeah. would, I would assume that's 
you know, sort of minimum table stakes. But if you're going to put money in, how much of your time are you spending really understanding the leadership team's belief in themselves and having this higher level of self-awareness and, and perhaps even going as far as to uh, investing significantly in their own development, that they are prioritizing that and not sounding like whatever the typical entrepreneur may sound like that, that many others may be used to. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I'd, I'd like to say, I'd like to sound really smart and say, Oh, I've got it dialed in and I've got a whole rubric and I've got a, you know, really scientific approach. And I'd be lying if I said that this is something it's new. And so I'm doing it certainly not at scale, but at more scale than I did when I was, when I had first invested in Infusionsoft. And so I'd say for me, it's balanced. There's, there's the quantitative side and then there's the qualitative. Like I care about the founders and every one of them that I work with, I consider them to be friends and I care about them as humans, you know, whether, I mean, look, angel investing is like, you may as well go to um, Vegas and that's okay. It's not a bad comparison. It's just, you know, consider your portfolio. And, and also as a woman, as a woman, we don't have enough, we don't have enough women out there that are actually doling out money to startups. And so you have a lot of decision-making that is really one-sided. And so I care very deeply about helping other women to get into the game. And so the only way to do that is to be that person doing it themselves. And so, you know, Brian, it's, it's really, I mean, it's a crapshoot. And so I'll probably lose most of my money, but you know, you sort of look for that one, maybe two wins and it's a longer term, but I'd rather do that than go into the public markets and have zero control and zero influence on how these companies do. Right. I mean, these are entrepreneurs that I know and come to come to love and, and um, can help them and, and can help guide and steer them in strategy and different ways to grow um, the organization. So I prefer to take to take that road. And I wish more um, I'd like to see. And I think we're creating a possibility that more more women are beginning to do that or at least see that that's a possibility. Well, I know I know that uh, masculine versus feminine characteristics and leadership in general is a topic that uh, you're very passionate about, and certainly an advocate for more feminine-based, uh, feminine-rooted characteristics in leadership. My question is: Do you think the world, the business world we live in today, is simply a result of? the world we've come from. Let me explain a little bit further. So if we think about the industrial revolution forward to present day, the women's role in the world, at least in the United States, was more of the, uh, the homemaker, the caretaker. And as you know, the decades unfolded, which bring us to present day, the equality of women in the workforce, you know, that scale began to tip and, where we find ourselves from a leadership perspective in business is simply just sort of the hangover effect of the world we've come from. And so we're accelerating much towards greater parity. Um, do, do, you think, do you think it's going to naturally solve itself or do we need more people advocating for women and rooted, women, excuse me, feminine rooted characteristics in leadership? So that's a big question. And I'd love for you, because I feel like you, um, I know you've done work with Raj Sisodia, who is a big proponent, and I think he's, in his more recent books, he's dissected the difference, right, between this masculine and feminine. And I wonder if that's even the correct way to look at it, right? Because then it 
sort of makes it all about gender rather than to like defining this ideal leader, this yeah. ideal person. Yeah. And so I throw the question back at you because I'd like to learn like what is if you look at masculine versus feminine, not even versus masculine and feminine. What are those top? Um, what do you see, especially you know you being a male, although you are. One of the things I love about you is that you're not this like only testosterone, high ego <laughs> kind of, you know, business person. Like you definitely carry, um, you carry both qualities, right? So, so what is that list, right? So if you look at masculine and feminine, what are those? Because I know you spend a lot of time with Raj and you've talked about this in some of the conferences that you've been in. Well, I think the, you know, if, if I look on, I'll, I'll, I'll go the masculine side first and you've basically got a list of character traits and I'll, I'll answer with character traits, which is, you know, on the male side, you've got this, this drive to win. You've got a, what appears to be a natural orientation towards a zero sum game in order for me to win. Somebody else has to lose. You have a drive towards, uh, I don't know what, what, what would be the opposite of collaboration, sort of a, uh, an individualistic mindset. Um, I'll, I'll use those three on the masculine side and sort of the, the, uh, the corollary on the feminine side is, is, uh, I think feminine traits, the character traits, again, not women, just feminine traits are, uh, a spirit of collaboration. It's not about winning. It's about finding solutions. It's not a zero sum game. It's a much more of a mentality of let's, is there a compromise in there that we can find where more than just one person walks away with a heavier, uh, you know, end, end of the game sort of result? Um, so just I could go on and on, but I think that to me, at at least a high level, symbolizes some of the differences between a masculine orientation and a feminine orientation. And I tend to agree with you that. It's not so much about man versus woman per se. Um, I believe both sets of characteristics exist in all of us. And it's simply a matter of whether it's a male or a female in a leadership role, understanding when and how to access the appropriate character traits given whatever the circumstances happen to be. Um, I'll also add to that before I turn it back over to you that um, there's clearly uh, uh, several data points that point to that the world we are racing towards, which is pretty scary in, in many respects, the future of it and the story that we're going to write is largely in the hands of the leaders who are going to take us there. And if we continue to privilege the masculine side, then I think we could potentially run into a very rocky future as opposed to bringing more balance to the decision-making in leadership, which I believe would lead to a much better outcome. It's beautifully said. Well, I don't feel like I said it that eloquently, but thank you. Well, but it, it's, it's, um, yeah. And, and so, and so we have a world, we have a world today and I don't, and um, I, I'm not, it's interesting. If you would ask me this question, kind of what I said earlier, uh, to another question. But if you asked me a year ago when I was contemplating, is the gender, you know, is the gender movement the movement that I want to get involved in? And I think I would have, I, I would have, it would have been more sort of um, anger and maybe chip on my shoulder fueled of yes, 
you know, we need more space. We need to have more seats at the table. We have a voice. It's, it's, it doesn't have, it's not being heard and when we, when we voice it, it's, it's being diminished and it doesn't count as much as the male voice, right? And what I've realized in the last year, because this is also, um, this is also a theme that I've spent some time with to really understand how much of my time do I want to dedicate to this. And what I've realized is that the world will, will unfold and change. I mean, it's shifting, right? You can't look anywhere, go online, read a newspaper and not find an article today around, around gender, around the, around the data, um, depending upon the industry. So, so you look at VC for, for as an example. There are more female firefighters than there are female general partners. Partners, these are the ones that get together on Monday on Mondays to decide who they're going to be funding, what companies get their funding, right? So there are more firefighters that are female than there are women who basically are part of the conversations that hold the purse strings that actually have decision-making ability. And I sit back and say, huh, okay. So that needs to change. What other industries need to change? You look in science. You look in, um, you look in science. You look in um, uh, in technology, right? Specific to coding. I mean, there's just this big divide and this gap. And what I realize is is that the revolutionary idea is not the approach that's going to have the biggest impact. It's about so. So what I've decided, and where I'm looking to put my energy, is in enabling women one at a time in whatever ways I can at scale by guiding them, talking to them, sharing with them ideas around how to ask for more, how to, how to think bigger of themselves, how to be more confident, how to all the different ways that I think society um, just programs us to be subservient. I mean, we're still in a day where um, I'm to take my husband's name, right? I mean, that in of itself is so loaded, right? There's this, there's this lesser than um, message that women get, and in some parts of the world, much more deeply and in a much more oppressive way than you know here in the U.S. But the message is sent, and as the mother of a daughter, I take this very, very seriously, and I want her to grow up in a world where she can be whatever she wants to be, and there's not this sense of not as good as, right? Um, because of her gender. Um, and so my point about this, rather than going revolutionary, I think there's a way to work with women one at a time and then focus on the men and not the ones that are not ready to change. Because in my mind, you know, they're gonna die out anyway. If, if you look at the, general, the, the generational differences. Sure. So that's, that, that's gonna be part of the change. But it's to, I'm interested in doing business with, engaging with, um, helping men who are in leadership roles who are kind of ready or really ready to tap into the power that diversity brings in building higher performing companies. And we talked about multiplication earlier, right? This idea of multiplying someone. You know, I, my entire career has been where I've been the single feet like the, the only female around the table and i used to view it as a privilege like oh i'm the one i'm the one that was smart enough i'm the one that that has enough of the masculine and the feminine combo to where i'm taken seriously i'm the one who you know had the confidence to to get this far whatever it is i viewed it brian as like a, oh okay um i guess i'm the one that made it and it's so interesting that today 
it says so much more about an organization about a leader when you're the only one at the table it's not it's no longer about you being the one that made it it's about it's about taking that mirror and putting it on the other end at the leader in the company and saying why are you only looking this far why are you only allowing one like why not why not go for 50% and so i think you've got the national the global conversation that is really going to continue to be the tailwind for that push. And I think the more male leaders that we have who are brave enough um, and confident enough to speak publicly and to be the change that they want to see, um, you know, you have two daughters, right? I do. It's interesting. You find that the men in men in leadership roles who are most interested in seeing diversity happen is oftentimes the dads of daughters. And that's 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 powerful. I, I wish it wasn't only the ones who are, you know, the fathers of daughters, but but if that's what we got, as soon as you make it about um, them imagining a world for their children, for their daughters, all of a sudden it um, it inspires them to do what they can do to make to change. And so where I've landed in all of this, I spent a lot of time thinking: Do I want to get involved in this movement and, and dedicate my career? And where I've landed is, is I don't want to make that my platform. I realize that the best that I can do, the most powerful work that I can do, is continue being a business person who is out to make change, um, positive change. There's so many problems in the world. And to do that through, through commerce, through capitalism, and I happen to be a woman, right? And so rather than waving the gender card, um, to be the kind of leader that um, that I can be inspired by, I want to be that, and then to take that to help other people to to identify you know, diversity opportunities and to help you know help women and sponsor them and and to help men and sponsor them so they can tap into this because a lot of this is frankly a self awareness issue. They don't even realize it's happening. Right. Well, we could probably spend a full podcast series talking about this one particular topic. So um, I, I want to move on, not because I don't want to continue talking about it, but I fear if we continue going, we're going to, we're going to be on it for a while because it's yeah. ju juicy and it's important. Yeah, it is. Well, and it's interesting too, because, and I've talked to you about this where I've, I mean, speaking of that, that Buddha quote and, and not starting something, I have been wanting to do a podcast for two years. And I love that you have gone and started this Built on Purpose podcast, and I'm really proud to see how far you've taken it in this short period of time. And I think, um, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe this is the shove that I need to, to start the podcast, because there is, there is a, there's an opportunity to have that conversation, not just around gender, but around this sort of you know, leadership and, and what, the, what the ideal leader looks like and the different forms and packages that they come in right um which is contrary to what we've all been raised to believe well that's so, a that's a yeah. perfect that's a perfect segue to uh what i want to ask is as a bit of a final wrap-up question here and i want to go back to the manifesto and specifically one of the 10 points which was number three that fear exists to remind us that we're alive so embrace it because what scares you the most is the very thing you should be doing. And so my question for you is, 
What's scaring the hell out of you right now? Hmm. I have, I have many ideas and I care about all of them. And for me, the challenge exists around which ones to go after and dedicate, um, you know, a part of my life. Um, and so for me, I think what's scary is I want to make sure I make the right choice. Um, it's almost like, so my point earlier around superpowers, I think one of the things that I've learned and has been part of my traits of, I hate to use the word success, because really what is that? What does that mean? But I guess to be someone who can achieve is um, I can be capable and I can figure just about anything out um, if I just put in the focus. And so I am, you know what, Brian, I'm really working hard to not keep doing the things that I'm good at that are like comfortable, I guess, is what, I'm, is what I mean more, right? So as an example, I've got a, I've got a consultancy. It's a marketing, it's a boutique marketing company called Coley. And we work with founders and CEOs of companies that are up to something interesting and are working on missions that matter. And that's mostly going to be in tech because that's, that's where I think you can have the greatest lever. Um, and it could be social enterprise, but it is for profit. And, uh, and what we do is we help them lead movements. We help them grow their brands and, and um, grow their customers. And that feels very similar to what, I mean, that's just what I've been doing my entire career in some way, shape, or form, telling stories, helping um, telling stories at scale. And um, while I like doing it, Brian, I also am looking into the future saying, okay, what do I want my legacy to be? And what do I want to be working on? And the, the area that I'm being pulled to is around climate change. And I mean, that is, that is some scary place to look when you consider what's happening in the world and what that requires, all the dimensions of change that that requires for us to actually have measurable, not even improvement, just to cancel out, you know, get to even. Um, but that's the thing that's really, I think, scares me the most and excites me the most, which is, I guess, reinventing myself and venturing down a path in a way that I have not done before. And so the future, I see a company that, is, that has got a technology and working on a way to, um, to, to improve um, new technology that's going to basically not have the negative impact on the planet um, that we have today in so many different ways with renewables and you know you name it it's damaging the earth in some way um, and so it scares me because it's way easier to just keep on doing what i've been doing um, maybe just do it more at scale or or do it in a little differently right but what i'm looking at is doing something completely different and where I think the tension exists and where my goal-oriented type A aspect of myself isn't necessarily helping and where meditating is actually kind of helping is what's that path, what is the playbook, what is it, and I want to get started. And so I'm in the space currently of trying to allow, you know, the universe um, sort of serendipity to come in 
so that I become aligned with, um, able to help and connect um, maybe people that are on this path and we can go and do something really great and big together that we may not even see the results of by the time we die. And I feel like that's something really worth dedicating my life to. Yeah. Well, that is a, uh, that is a wonderful place to uh, at least temporarily put a bow on this conversation. Kathy, uh, I love everything about you. I'm so glad that uh, I have you as someone in my life and thank you for joining me uh, on, on this Y Scouts journey. Thank you for joining me on the podcast and thank you for being you. This was great. I appreciate the time spent here with you and you had really great questions. So I appreciate the time and thought you put into this and I echo all of your comments right back at you. I think this is like a mutual admiration society. So um, thank you, Ryan. Thanks for all the work that you do in the world. Thank you. Until next time, thank you for listening, folks. You can obtain a transcribed version of this show and hear more interviews from the Built on Purpose podcast on our website, yscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions you'd like me to send Kathy, drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I'll gladly forward them on. If you enjoyed Kathy's interview, there are several others I think you'll dig. John Schufelt, emergency room doc, attorney, pilot, author, speaker, coach, guitar player, CEO, and relentless learner, Ray Del Muro, founder and CEO of Refresh Glass, and Ann Rhodes, former chief people officer at Southwest Airlines and author of Built on Values, are just a few of the many episodes you can find at yscouts.com forward slash podcast. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.